Okay, so we're just going to jump right into it. Um, we'll look at things in order. We'll do the preface and history of the Presbyterian Church, the Covenant and Constitutions, uh, pages 1 through 10 of the Book of Church Order, and then we'll start on the Directory of Church Order, which is pages 11 through 58, and we'll only get up to page 35 this evening, God willing, and then pick up uh, next week, Lord willing, with the rest. Um, so first, talk about the use of the term congregation. The Book of Church Order uses that term to refer to local churches, although it could be used for other contexts. You also have the word Presbyterian classes, etc. Um, if you men have any questions, feel free to raise your hand, or, or Derek just mentioned that you have a question. What I may do in succeeding weeks is have you submit questions beforehand, if there are any from the readings, to make sure I cover anything, but feel free to stop me this time. Um, and in the future, if you don't remember to send me something beforehand, I'll let you you guys stop me as I'm going through. All right, then we do the history of the Presbyterian Church, dealing with the original constitution of the New Testament churches, uh, drawing heavily off of the model of Israel. There would be elders in the congregation, uh, and there would be deacons. Those are the two offices we see consistently throughout the New Testament, and just as an interesting sidelight within the early church fathers. We see that through the course of history, there became a division between one elder called the bishop and the rest of the elders called presbyters. That's Ignatius of Antioch, his um, episcopacy. Not the same as a regional episcopacy, but a congregational episcopacy. Uh, that continued on to be corrupted throughout the Middle Ages, and especially in the rise of the papacy, but also in the metropolitans and the various offices instituted by men within the government of the church. During the time of the Reformation, the gospel simplicity was restored, especially in Geneva, Scotland, and New England. Uh, there were, as we go through the history here, it talks about the development of Presbyterian church government and doctrine in Scotland and Geneva and then also through the Southern Presbyterian split, and then finally the PCA, the merging of the PCA with the Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod, and then how the RPCGA was formed shortly after that. So any questions about the historical portion or the introduction? Okay. Move into the Covenant and Constitution. The covenant is the foundation for the rest. It's where we as a church have bound ourselves for the preservation of ourselves and our religion from utter ruin to maintain the preservation of the Reformed religion. That's what we believe the scriptures teach, both in doctrine as well as in worship and in discipline and government, all according and reformed according to the word of God. Uh, but also a desire expressed in our church covenant to be humbled for our own sins and wanting to walk together with those who are of a like Reformed faith and praying that God will bless us in that regard. So that's the church covenant. We are a Reformation church. We're a continuing church of the Presbyterian Church of Scotland, planted here in the United States. 
as the history detailed. Uh, there's some good books. If anybody is interested, I could recommend, uh, outside of this course, I can recommend some books if you want to learn more about Presbyterian church history. But we consider ourselves a continuing church of the Reformation. Our church constitution, it lists there the original Westminster Confession. We do not believe that the American amendments were appropriate or biblical. We believe that they deviated from the teaching of Scripture, so we hold to the original confession, larger catechism, shorter catechism, and then we have our directories for church order, church worship, discipline, administrative rules, missions, and examination. That, all taken together, constitutes what is our church constitution. Then there's the section on evangelical mission. Um, we believe that the Great Commission entails a twofold outreach. One, to those who do not know Christ, to bring them to faith in Christ by presenting the gospel to them. And then, on the other hand, the ordering together of the people of God and the government of the church and the teaching of God's word, the edification of the saints so that they may live and think as Christians. We also recognize the other Reformed confessions and catechisms having value and usefulness for Christian edification, though we are not bound to them in the same way. We believe they teach a, a similar or a like faith and practice. Uh, those include the Heidelberg Catechism, as it mentions there. Um, we recognize other confessions like the Savoy or the Baptist Confession, but we don't consider those to be a like faith. Very similar, but not exactly the same. Um, and then in our evangelical mission, we talk about specific errors that we have rejected. As a denomination, we do not accept the teaching of charismatic theology, dispensationalism, Arminianism, altar calls, uh, abortion in any form, promoting sodomy or transgenderism, uh, or anything like that, no participation in secret societies, neo-orthodoxy, modernism, feminism, any of the teachings of evolution. Uh, so we have rejected these sorts of things, including paedo-communion. We don't believe they're taught in Scripture, and we believe they're damaging to Christian faith and piety. We also refer to the apostasy of those who reject the inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, we use the word inerrancy, meaning that the Bible does not have any errors. We also use the word infallible, which means the Bible is unable to err. Infallibility refers to potential. The inerrancy term refers to the actual facts of the case. So we believe both. The Bible cannot err, and the Bible has not erred. It contains no errors. Um, also, those who reject the deity of Christ, we consider to be apostates. We also have, in our evangelical mission, a section on how changes would be made to the confession or to our book of church order if we were to do so. And we're willing to receive correction and understanding, but we have a specific method for someone to pursue should they desire to do so. All right. <clears throat> Any questions about those specific parts, A1 through A4? Um, I just... Really, really quick, and, and we don't have to go down a rabbit trail, but I just wasn't familiar with the terms uh, in the uh, for neo-Orthodox or neo-Evangelical theology, like uh -huh. the rejection of that in section mm -hmm. A42. Yep. Um, and you like maybe you didn't have a footnote for those, like it did for the other ones. Yeah. So neo-Orthodoxy is where people use Orthodox words, but they empty those Orthodox words of their meaning. 
That would be neo-orthodoxy. And then neo-evangelical theology, the old evangelical theology is a re rejection of sacerdotalism. And the neo-evangelical theology is what I would call woke. It's like leaning toward communism. So it's not just that we believe that we're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. That's evangelicalism. But it's an importation of forms of modern thought and trying to syncretize those with the historic evangelical faith. Got it. Does that make sense? Yeah, we we think that we we think that the word evangelical is a valuable word because it describes someone who is not a sacerdotalist. But there are people who call themselves evangelicals that we would say are neo-evangelical, not historic. All right, good question. Any other questions about those sections? All right, then our matters of ecclesiastical liberty. First, we define what our standards are that we do not consider matters of liberty, and that is the Westminster Confession, the larger and shorter catechisms, as well as the Book of Church Order. Those are things we agree to abide by, whether in doctrine or in practice. Uh, but the, the specific things are non-confessional issues. These are things that are outside of the confession of faith. These are the matters of liberty. Uh, they're not within our Book of Church Order, not spelled out. Uh, we also mention there in Section 3, A53, that we desire to have a biblical unity and not a conformity. That's a very important point. We believe in unity in those things that we know Scripture teaches, but we believe that a, a forced conformity on all matters is not only unwise, it's also unscriptural. The scriptures do not give us the right to do that. We also talk about the manner in which cases of ecclesiastical liberty are to be handled. They're not to be by casting ad hominem arguments like accusing someone of being an apostate because they don't do this or that ecclesiastical liberty issue, but rather these things can be handled as brethren. A minister may preach about those matters. He can teach on those issues. He can explain the session's view, what the session believes is correct, and exposit passages of scripture to that effect, and also handle it at presbytery. But I'm not going to say such and such a minister in the RPCGA is a wicked person because he doesn't agree with me on these doctrines or imply some kind of wrongdoing on their part when they're acting conscientiously regarding those things. Also, it mentions the conduct of members with regard to ecclesiastical liberty matters. Um, the person may retain their own conscience but must conform to the practice of their particular congregation. An instance of this would be if a person believed in exclusive psalmody and they were in a church that didn't practice that, then they would be required not to be disruptive, not to talk to members of the congregation, other members about it, but to submit themselves to the session and try to persuade the session if that was their view. Um, now, if someone is disciplined in a matter of ecclesiastical liberty, it's not because of their conscientious belief. It would be more of their disruption of the peace of the particular congregation they're part of. All right, and then ecclesiastical unity. This is a very edifying section dealing with Christ's prayer in particular, that we be sanctified through the truth. Uh, this is Christ's prayer in John 17, 17 through 21. This is 
we say, a pattern for Christian and ecclesiastical unity. There are three basic principles that sanctification is based upon the word of God. That's the first principle in that prayer. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And then the second principle is that Christ sent us into the world to present the gospel as he himself did. And that's where Christ talks about uh, as God sent him into the world, even so he sent us into the world. And therefore he sanctified himself that he might sanctify us through the truth. And then the third principle that we note there is church unity is a living testimony that Christ was sent by God the Father. So it's very important to us because it reflects how God sent Christ, Christ sent us. And so we're to be one as he and the Father are one in a like unity. Not identical unity, but a a like unity. We also talk there about the... uh, work of healing breaches to draw back the disunity or disruption whether among ourselves in a local congregation in a presbytery in a general assembly or among denominations or other believers that's something we want to work toward is unity among the people of God in a common confession of faith we believe that our confession of faith is what scripture teaches on the points that it covers And so therefore we would like to promote that to others to encourage them to consider the teaching of scripture that we believe unifies the people of God. Okay, so we talk about a couple of different quotations that are given here. There's a really good quotation from John Knox about what the true church is and the unity of the church. He talks about, or this is the Scots Confession, um, one company and multitude of men chosen by God who rightly worship and embrace him by true faith in Christ Jesus, who is the only head of the Kirk, even as it is the body and spouse of Christ Jesus. So this is the church of Jesus Christ, the visible church. Those who believe in Christ, those who worship God, those who embrace God through faith in Jesus Christ. And then also, uh, again, talking about praying, endeavoring, working toward unity among the true church, especially in the local congregation, but even in presbyteries and even of brethren of like faith to work toward the unity of the faith of the Son of God together. We note here from our confession of faith that the purest churches on earth are subject to mixture and to error. All right, then uh, part B is the directory of church order, starting on page 11. The Directory of Church Order, I'm going to look at some of this in very high-level detail. Some of it I'll get into more detail. Uh, The preface there refers to Christ as the head and king of his church, and that Christ has gifted the church with officers, ordinances, uh, for the edification of the people of God. I should have stopped there. Any questions about ecclesiastical liberty or unity? Okay, so back to the preface, Christ the head, giving gifts to the church for the edification of the body. Then section B2 refers to the church. First section, the church of Christ. There's one visible church with ministries, oracles, and ordinances given to the church for the gathering and perfecting of the saints until Christ's second coming. Now this is important. Some people believe the family is like the church and that God has given the ordinances to the family and they have kind of what I would refer to as a hyper-patriarchalism where the family uh, transgresses the boundary marks God set for the church. 
we're asserting that there is a separate jurisdiction from the state as well as the family, and that this jurisdiction of the church includes the ministries, oracles, and ordinances of Jesus Christ for the perfecting of the saints. Uh, Particular churches or local congregations or presbyteries are all members of that one church. We talk about membership vows. It lays out the membership vows here uh, concerning the faith of a, a man or a woman in the scriptures themselves, the doctrine of total depravity, our sinfulness, and therefore our need for redemption by believing in Christ and in him alone. We also talk about the promise of repentance in those vows, the government of the church agreeing to submit oneself to it. And then we have an addendum there concerning parents who have their children baptized. Uh, First question concerns the depravity of the child and the doctrine of God's covenant of grace is embracing that child within that covenant of promise. The promise of the parents to instruct the child in the faith that we believe. And then they're, they're agreeing to pray for, set an example, and nurture that child in the faith of Jesus Christ. So those are the vows that we give for baptism as well as for someone joining as a member of the church. Section B22 refers to Christ, the head of the church. Christ has soul and exclusive headship over the church, we say, as Scripture teaches. And we contrast that with the error of Thomas Erastus, which came down through the English monarchs um, and also made its way into English congregationalism and some forms of Lutheranism. That is that the church is subordinated to the state. We actually saw this with the lockdowns and the mandates and all that goofiness that The state said, you church have to do these things, you must submit, and there were arguments made, well Romans 13 says the church has to submit, which it doesn't, it actually says that every soul has to submit to the governing authorities, it does not say that the church has to, in fact the church is not um, a citizen of any country, it's it's a, a jurisdiction that's international, that's outside of the realm of civil government. It's a separate jurisdiction directly under Christ as head. So we reject the idea of the church being under the authority of the state. That is not what the scriptures teach. So we refer to Erastianism and early American congregationalism, who sadly, in colonial America, they had instances of Erastianism as well. Um, We also are against prelacy, which would be the church over the state. That would be where the, the pope or some metropolitan could unking a king. He could take away, they thought, his civil jurisdiction by interdicting his land and saying no baptisms, no marriages, that kind of thing. We don't believe that either. And finally, we reject church incorporation. And a corporation being a creature of the state, we don't believe the church should go to the state and say, please create something that we call a church. We think that is a violation of the principle of Christ's headship over the church. Okay, so before we move on to section 3, any questions about the preface or B to the church? Okay, B3. Officers of the church. B31. We talk about extraordinary versus ordinary officers. People who would reject this would be people like the Mormons, the Roman Catholics, the Eastern Orthodox, the Charismatics. 
They believe that the ongoing revelation goes beyond the apostles. We say, no, those are extraordinary offices meant by Christ to establish the church with a foundation in truth in the scriptures themselves. They say, no, we have other officers that are extraordinary who give us ongoing revelation, whether that's through councils, by apostolic succession, by some charismatic idea of a gift, or whether that's through the, what is it, the priesthood of Melchizedek among the Mormons or something. They believe they have an apostolic succession. We don't say that we have that. Uh, We believe the apostolic tradition is contained in the books of the New Testament, full stop, period, end of story. We believe in scripture alone, in other words. So therefore, we do not believe that there are ongoing prophets or apostles. Now, the New Testament holds out two offices that we see consistently taught, the eldership and the diaconate. Those are the two offices we believe. So we are a two-office church, elders and deacons, as far as that goes. Now, the eldership is one office, but we believe it has various functions. And you see this throughout the New Testament. Paul actually referring to himself as a preacher, a teacher, and an apostle. So he has three offices that he mentions when he writes to Timothy. But you see it elsewhere. There are doctors, there are pastors, and those are used alongside each other. There are those who govern in the church, or those who rule, and then there are those who rule well, especially in word and doctrine. So we see that word and doctrine is one of the functions of the eldership, but also governing is a function of the eldership, as is teaching a function of the eldership. So we see one office of elder with various functions or positions, you might say. The functions being teaching and governing, or preaching and governing and teaching, but the positions being a church governor, a pastor, or a doctor. Okay, and then before we have the office of elder, there are elders who are pastors. Um, The congregation elects one of the elders to preside or to moderate. The duties of the pastor include praying with and for the people, reading the scriptures publicly, preaching from the scriptures, catechizing in the basic truths and doctrines of our faith, the mystery of the faith, drawing together the saints and the unity of the Son of God, administering the sacraments, blessing the people of God, caring for the poor, moderating at session meetings, and ruling in the congregation. And then we talk about the elders as teachers or doctors. So we have the pastor, and then we have the teacher or doctor. We see his role specifically in the New Testament is one of teaching primarily, also having right and authority to administer sacraments. And the office of doctor is generally not in use unless a congregation is large enough to warrant it, unless the the session is large enough and you have someone who can specialize in teaching as opposed to someone who specializes in making application and exhortation in the pastoral or preaching role. So ordinarily, if a a congregation is small, the doctor and the pastor are collapsed into one person. But if there are enough elders, then you can divide up those specific uh, positions within a congregation. Now, a doctor in our form of government is not elected by a congregation. And because of that, he doesn't have right to rule in a particular congregation. He might rule in presbytery, but not in a congregational sense because he's not elected, and that's that's one of the planks for lawful rule in a local congregation is the consent of those who are governed. 
That's part of our Presbyterian church government, part of the New Testament teaching. We also have something we call ecclesiastical advocates. We don't consider this to be like any kind of office, but it's a, a group of men among the doctors who are specializing in specific emerging doctrinal issues. So if there needs to be a study committee, these would be the men who would do it. And they're under the direct jurisdiction of the General Assembly of our church. So you have local congregation, part of a presbytery, then you have the presbyteries joined together in a General Assembly. That's our basic structure of government. Okay, elders as church governors. We have pastors, doctors, and church governors. We believe that the church governors are equal in ruling status together with the pastors. Their job is to oversee the conduct and the manners of the congregation. Their duties include the keys of the kingdom, admitting people in or excluding people by discipline in cases uh, that it re is required. They are to function in calling together meetings of the congregation, the local congregation, dismissing the congregation, organizing the meetings of the congregation, preparing things privately so that when things happen publicly, they may be done in orderly and an expeditious way. Um, in, in the case of judicial cases, they would pronounce a sentence according to scripture. They would be responsible to guide and to lead the congregation, to war warn and encourage those who are wayward, to visit and pray for congregants, to prevent and heal offenses that occur not just within the local congregation, but in the community or within the presbytery or the general assembly or in any, any number of offenses or uh, divisions that may occur. Also, the go church governors are to encourage the congregation in their callings, to encourage frugality and diligence in those callings, and they also oversee the life and teaching of the pastor. So the pastor is under the jurisdiction of the other elders to mind him, especially, as well as the rest of the congregation. And then occasionally, if given license by the presbytery, a church governor may also read the scriptures publicly or even preach or administer the sacraments, but it would be contingent on having license to do so by the presbytery. We have an uh, elder with the power of an evangelist. Um, such elders are usually uh, cases where there isn't an established presbytery nearby. So let's say someone wanted to work with the RPCGA and come, come under our government, but they lived in a foreign land. We didn't have anything near them. The Presbyterian, which would commission them, would give them the power to establish churches with review by the Presbytery. And then, um, before we get into the receiving of elders, any questions so far about the office of elder, the extraordinary versus ordinary offices, any, anything related to those? I did have one question that I just noticed during the reading was that uh, evangelist was listed as one of the discontinued offices, but then what you just read about the power of evangelist, I guess that's kind of obviously making a distinction between it as an office versus it as a, like, I guess a function. Yes, that's correct, Derek. It's distinguishing an office per se. It's still just an, an elder. That's his office. But he's given a specific power because of the unusual circumstances. And because you can't have a normal functioning presbytery doing the work that it would normally do in a foreign land or some distant location in the hinterlands of America where there is no functioning presbytery, this power is given as really vested within the presbytery itself, 
but they're conceding a certain measure of power to a person that isn't ordinary. Got it. So, so what what is the evangelist as office like? The authors of the gospels. No, we understand, that's a good question, we understand the office of evangelist to be someone like Titus or Timothy. They're not apostles, but actually there's the capital A apostle and the lowercase a apostle. Are you familiar with that idea? Um, like apostle as a, as a you know, missionary or messenger? Yes, yeah. Be, well, or, yeah. So the... In Second Corinthians, Paul refers to false apostles. That's people who profess to be like Titus and Timothy. And he actually contrasts the false apostles with himself and Titus. And, and then um, Barnabas is referred to in the book of Acts as an apostle. There are apostles of Christ, directly chosen by Christ and sent by him. Then there are apostles of particular presbyteries. So Paul was a dual apostle. He was an apostle along with Barnabas from the Presbyterian Antioch, and he was an apostle of Christ directly commissioned by Jesus. So the evangelist, I would say, is that lowercase a apostle, like Timothy, like Barnabas, like Titus. They could establish churches. Titus could ordain elders in every city or preside over the ordination because there wasn't an existing presbytery in, in Crete. And so, therefore, it was unusual, and the Presbytery conceded authority to him to do those things. Or Paul did directly as an apostle, maybe as a representative of the Presbytery at Antioch. I don't know. Got it. Okay, thanks. That's helpful. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. Good question. All right. So then, section B47, we refer to the receiving of an elder. Uh, This is, B47 is a particular circumstance where you have um, an elder who is ordained or who can be transferred in. And this would be where if they were ordained in another denomination and they were able to pass their exams with us, we would transfer in their license as an elder. Um, We talk about in section B48 the general qualifications for elders. And this is just a summary of what the New Testament teaches, especially in the books of 1 Timothy and Titus. The man obeys scripture, he leads a holy holy life, he has one valid wife. We don't believe that marriage is eternal, we believe that there are cases of divorce, like when the spouse dies, or a lawful divorce. Um, If someone is unlawfully divorced, of course that would disqualify them, or if they were polygamously married, that would disqualify them. Uh, Also the submission of the household, the wife and the children, if, if applicable, there would need to be godly submission there. Um, he would need to be repentant if there were unbecoming sins in his past. He would have to manifest that he is not still entangled in those sins and that he has sincerely repented of them. He must be a man of honesty and integrity. He must be baptized. He must have a credible testimony with those in and outside of the church. And sometimes a credible testimony means a bad reputation with certain types of people. Just to make that clear, it doesn't mean you're nice and everybody likes you. It means that you live a godly life, and sometimes that means people hate you. Um, We also inquire about any pending discipline against a man, and then if he wants to be qualified in the RPCGA, he has to relinquish any other ecclesiastical affiliations, ordinations, membership, whatever. He has to sever those. He has to be able to take the vows conscientiously. 
He agrees to preach and teach the doctrinal summary in our standards, the confession and the catechisms. He agrees to submit to the book of church order, the standards of our church and the government of our church. And then also we have a program of education for elders. He has to agree to enter into and to seek to complete that program in a reasonable amount of time. And then he agrees not to litigate in the secular courts for strictly ecclesiastical matters. Now, if somebody commits a crime against him, of course he has recourse to the secular courts. But we're talking about ecclesiastical matters, disciplinary matters, matters of government of the church. And then we finally note there that ordinarily deacon training is preliminary to ministerial training. Now, I'm not going to go into much detail on sections 4.9 through 4.14, or 4.15, actually. But does anyone have any questions about what we've covered concerning the office of elder or about any of those last, what is that, six sections that I'm not going to cover? No questions? Derek, you have any questions? No. Okay. I'm going to really quickly cover the ordination and licensing. Now, ordination is a biblical teaching. In fact, in the book of Hebrews... Interestingly enough, it identifies the laying on of hands as a foundational Christian doctrine, which is unusual because in our day, most Christians don't even know what ordination is or that it's necessary. You can have a man who goes online and gets his degree at, you know, Hillbilly Bible College, and then he puts out a shingle and he starts his own church. And there's no notion that, well, wait, who laid hands on you? Like, Where did you get your authority from? Now, the Son of God was asked that question, which, of course, is ridiculous. When the Son of God shows up, you don't ask him questions about his ordination. Where'd you go to school? But the rest of us are not the Son of God. And consequently, we ask those questions. Okay, who laid hands on you? Because they partake in your sin if you're sinning as a minister. So we need to know under whose authority you reside. So ordination has to do with that. Where did you get your authority from? Who commissioned you? Who sent you? That's the question. And so ordination of elders deals with that very issue. First, B51, we have a section on ordination itself. Uh, Ordination is ordinarily to be conferred by an existing church authority. It is to be done by the imposition of hands, uh, and someone must have some assignment, even if that's, I'm a doctor in the church, I'm going to be handling special doctrinal cases, whatever, or there's a particular congregation that I'm going to be serving, or whatever it is, that must be in place before ordination. We don't ordain men to nothing, in other words. Uh, A man must be qualified before he's ordained. He must be examined before he's ordained. And in the case where he rules in a congregation, he must be approved by the congregation he's going to serve before he is ordained for that particular work. Uh, Section 5.2, we talk about uh, ordination being vested in the hands of the presbytery. Now, the only information we have about the laying on of hands is done on a presbyterial level. Timothy received his gifts and his office through the laying on of hands of the presbytery, Paul himself being one of the presbyters. So we see in the New Testament, there is a conference of authority, the licensing of a man, the giving him permission to do something, which if he did it on his own accord would be unlawful. It would be sinful for a man to self-ordain. And unless there were extremely unusual circumstances, 
that that would be totally inappropriate. Okay, so then we talk about directions for ordination. The man who wants to be ordained or believes he's called by God to be ordained should address himself to the presbytery. He should bring proof of his calling, a testimonial of his conversion, proof of his diligence and proficiency of his studies, life and conduct, and all sorts of other things. This is followed by presbyterial exams. Now, having gone through these presbyterial exams and having conferred with elders in other denominations, our exams are top-notch. They are really hard. And and not to be um, rude or whatever, but just to weed out men who are not qualified doctrinally and practically to administer the word and sacraments. So we take it very seriously, and we believe that a man should really be a godly man who's serious about his faith, who tries to live a holy life, who governs his family well, and who understands our system of doctrine so that he doesn't get himself trapped in a situation where he's supposed to be teaching our doctrine and he doesn't even know what it is. So our examinations are very rigorous and very difficult. Okay, so having dealt with that uh, section on directions for ordination, now the rules for examination. He must be examined in the biblical languages, and there's a whole list of other topics of theology and practice. Uh, He has to be able to exposit or open the text of Scripture. He has to be able to teach well. He has to be able to deal with controversies. And all these, we examine the man concerning those things. And the examination, if a man is highly qualified and knows his stuff, it can happen in a couple, three days. You can knock that out. For a man who is shaky in certain things, it might take months or even years. So we don't have a particular timeline. It has to happen, you know, lickety-split, or it has to take at least three months or whatever. It has to be that he's qualified, and that's what we look for. Uh, Section 5.5, I'll skip. Receiving of elders previously ordained. We just transfer them in in certain cases or have them examined in others, case-by-case basis. Uh, we prohibit simony in section B56. Uh, we do not allow a person to buy an office or to bribe their way into an office. Then we have the vows for ordination. This is the person to be ordained is taking a vow before God and before the presbytery. He believes that the Bible in the Old and New Testaments is the only inerrant, infallible word of God. He accepts the teaching of our standards, the confession, and the two catechisms as the summary of the teaching of Scripture, not as the full teaching of Scripture, but as the points it talks about, that's what the Bible teaches. He also expresses agreement with our, or approval of our form of government, discipline, and worship. He promises subjection in the Lord, and he also agrees that if he ever changes his doctrinal positions reported in his examinations, and he will go to his Presbyterian and say, I've changed on this. I told you I believe this, now I believe that. So he has to, and that's that goes for ecclesiastical liberty issues as well. If he has any doctrinal changes that he stated at the beginning, I believe X, and now he believes non-X, he has to tell his Presbytery. Um, so those are things that a minister vows to, or an elder vows to, ruling elder, governor, or doctor. All right, then B58, we have the approval of an elder by a particular congregation. Uh, We believe that before a congregation votes on a man, they should get to know him, his teaching, his preaching, 
and his personal life and his family and see him how he behaves himself and how his family behaves themselves toward him. Uh, They need to get to know him. They need to hear him. Then a committee from the congregation is to appear before the presbytery and concur that the congregation has voted and that they have said, yes, the presbytery has to agree and the congregation has to agree to the particular man to serve as a church governor or as a pastor in their congregation. Then uh, B59 gives us procedures for the installation of elders. There's a recommendation, not a requirement, but a recommendation of a day of prayer and fasting before the day of installation. The presbytery will send a delegation, usually at least two elders. Uh, There will be inquiries of the elder who's going to be installed in that congregation by one of those elders who comes from the presbytery. Um, Then we have in B510 the requirements of the congregation so far as the installation of the elders. The people in this, it would be like a, a worship service basically. The people express their consent through someone that they've appointed publicly that they agree to have this elder installed. And then uh, that's subsequent to him taking his vows before uh, the whole congregation. And then the people agree also not just to install this elder, but also to submit to this elder in the Lord and all the other duties of church members to their rulers. And then in the conclusion of the ordination service, B511, we have the laying on of hands to that particular work. So there's the ordination to the office, but this is different. This is the ordination to this specific work. And you see this in Paul and and Barnabas. Presumably they were already ordained as elders in that presbytery of Antioch, but when they're sent to a particular work, they're ordained again. The hands are laid on them a second time because it's not just to the office now, now it's to a particular work. So we believe... That's the biblical order that we ought to follow. And so we'll have a laying on of hands by the delegation from Presbytery to that particular work, a prayer for the blessing of God by the elder uh, or for the elder who has just been installed by one of the elders from Presbytery. And then B512, licensed elders. This is where someone is in training to be a church governor. Uh, we believe that it's suitable to first serve as a deacon. This isn't necessarily an absolute must, but we believe the general rule is that a man uh, who is qualified to be a deacon is basically halfway to an elder. The only difference would be leadership and teaching. That would be the difference between a deacon and an elder. But otherwise, if you look at the biblical requirements, they're almost identical because it has to do with living a godly life being conscientious in his faith, understanding what he believes. The next step is, can he communicate it and edify others? And is he showing the gifts of government in his life and his family, particularly if he has a wife and children? Okay, so that's serving to become an elder, first serving as a deacon, serving for a minimum of one year as a deacon, having a letter of recommendation from the session to the presbytery because the presbytery ordains elders and deacons in the RPCGA, So having a letter of recommendation from the session, he agrees to enroll in a course of study, which is what helps him to understand better our doctrine and his duties. And then uh, before he can be licensed to teach or to preach, he has to complete a systematics and hermeneutics course, which we have prescribed at the back of this. Actually, we have some of the coursework that would be done. 
And then after that licensure, after what we call it becoming a licentiate, he's trained under the supervision of his session and also of his presbytery for his ongoing uh, learning as a man of God. Okay, any questions about the ordination of elders? Derek, you have any questions? No questions on that. All right, and then finally we'll conclude with directions for licensing gospel preachers. Um, qualifications, B61. Qualifications, he must be a member of an RPCGA congregation without other ecclesiastical affiliations. He must be known to the church and others outside of the church as a godly man who lives a holy life, who obeys the scriptures, very much like the qualifications we talked about for an elder earlier. If he's married, he must be living with his one valid wife and have proper submission by his wife and children if he has any. Uh, He agrees as a licentiate not to teach on disputed doctrines. Now, he can preach on the ecclesiastical liberty stuff, but not on anything controversial that isn't within the realm of known doctrine to us in our confession or catechisms. B62, procedures for the licentiate. He has to complete a checklist for examination. He gives that to presbytery representative, or he sends it to the credentials committee of his presbytery, Then he will be examined by his presbytery by some kind of representative. uh, And after he's been carefully examined, he is then or may be licensed to preach. And that license only lasts for a year. He's not an elder yet. So that license can be suspended after a year or even earlier if he proves himself unworthy of it. Um, And then finally, his rights and privileges there in B63. He may preach. He may administer a service, he can lead in the singing, he can do the scripture readings, but he cannot administer the sacraments. And then if a session approves, he can also serve as pulpit supply. Okay, so that's the first 33, what is that, 35, up to page 35 of our Book of Church Order. A marathon review of that. Any other questions you men might have? Um... I, I didn't want to kind of dive into it too much while you were going through the material but at the end. I, I mean, just could you explain a little bit more about um, like the ecclesiastical liberty when you mentioned unity and not conformity? I read that there, um, and I, I just wasn't I wasn't maybe completely sure. Or maybe could you give some examples? Um, I know in another part of the Book of Church Order, it kind of talks about some examples. I don't really. I just I feel like I don't completely understand the concept of ecclesiastical liberty as it might relate to Christian liberty. I know we've talked offline about the differences, but I'm still having trouble maybe wrapping my head around it. Yeah, so ecclesiastical liberty is the freedom of a session within our form of government to differ from other sessions or other presbyteries to disagree with other presbyteries about what matters are considered acceptable practices. And it doesn't have to do necessarily with a conviction. So as let me use the example again of a person, let's say that I go to a church that believes in exclusive psalmody, but I don't, I don't agree with that. Well, the ecclesiastical part is that the session makes the determination about the worship practice. The member of the congregation does not. 
So because that's a matter for ecclesiastical liberty, the congregant can retain their liberty of conscience, but they must abide by the practice that the session has established. So it's related to specific ecclesiastical practices, not to matters of indifference like Christian liberty is. Christian liberty is something that is completely indifferent. It's not a matter of church practice or whatever. It's a matter of your own personal life. It has to do with your own conscience and how you are required by God to submit to your own conscience and to inform your conscience by the word of God as a man redeemed by Christ or a woman or a child redeemed by Christ, freed in your conscience from the curse of God, but you have to obey your conscience in these indifferent matters. Just take that idea of an individual with their conscience, transfer it to a session with with its conscience, only concerning those matters of worship and, and practice that are not specifically stipulated within our confession or catechisms, and you have your answer. What is ecclesiastical liberty versus Christian liberty? Does that help, though? Does that explain that for you? I think it does in a, in a you know in an abstract way, and I think with the with this exclusive psalmody, I think it uh, that makes sense. I guess uh, specific to our situation, I know we've talked about like baptism as it relates to like reception of Roman Catholic baptism, or mm-hmm. we talked about like you know personal observance of. of of Christmas, I know that that's not something that you know the, the church or individuals may may agree with. Are those would those fall into those into the category of ecclesiastical liberty? Is that something else, or how would that kind of play itself out? The matter of the observance of Christmas, if a person keeps it as a mass or as a holy day, that's forbidden by our confession of faith. So people may not observe Christmas in the sense. I mean, you don't use the word mass without meaning it. So a person cannot observe Christmas. If they want to observe some other thing and it's around the same time and they do all the other stuff, that would be a matter of uh, personal liberty. But anything covered by the confession of faith or the catechisms, no, no other day may be kept holy than the Christian Sabbath. That's a confessional issue. So we can't keep other days as holy days. We, we just can't. It's not permissible. That's not a matter of liberty that's a matter of doctrine that we all agree in our confession of faith. But if someone wanted to, like I was saying, you know, they want to exchange presents on the 25th of December, that's a matter of their Christian liberty. I would try to persuade them against it based off of the monuments to idolatry and the abuses that have been made of it historically and are made of it currently, and also that it's a doctrine and commandment of men that nullifies the commandments of God and it pretends to celebrate Christ as king when actually it nullifies his kingship because he never gave orders to observe that day. So I would try to persuade people to recognize that, but even that I would say I have to leave that at a certain place to their conscience and their responsibility. So as far as ecclesiastical liberty, another issue would be when does the Sabbath begin? Does it begin at sundown on Saturday? Does it begin at midnight on Sunday morning. Um, My understanding is that it's midnight to midnight, but there are ministers in our denomination who don't agree with that. And their session is the session that would determine, you know, what is Sabbath breaking? When do we expect our people to observe the Sabbath? Their understanding would be sundown to sundown. But that's another matter of ecclesiastical liberty. It wouldn't touch me, per se, uh, because I'm not in their jurisdiction, but my teaching would be consistent with a midnight-to-midnight position. Mm-hmm. And if we were to practice something as a church, we would practice it midnight-to-midnight. Not that we'd ever get to that point, 
uh, unless I was like you know trying to get Eutychus to fall out of the third story and kill himself. But I don't have I don't have the power of healing from death, at least that I'm aware of. So try not to do that. Does, does the does the baptism question we were talking about before fall into these categories either, or or is, or it, is that it's it straddles it because on the one hand we recognize the right of a session to take a particular position, on the other hand we do not allow a session to make people do things against their conscience, so it straddles between ecclesiastical liberty in one respect and Christian liberty in another. Interesting. Okay. Thank you. Yep. All right. Anything spawned from that, Casey? No? Okay. All right. Well, let's close our time together in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this study. We thank you, Lord, for the various questions and the uh, teaching of our Book of Church Order. We thank you for the history of the Presbyterian Church and how, by your grace, you have given us your word so that we may know the truth, that we may be unified by knowing the teaching of your scriptures as our Lord Jesus Christ prayed, that we would be one. So we pray, Lord, that you would give us a unity that is based in the faith of the Son of God, the teaching of Scripture, and even in our context, in light of our subordinated standards, which summarize the teaching of your Holy Word. Give us a unity, though we do not conform in all things and are not perfectly agreed in our practices, yet we are unified in our faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you for these, even these matters of ecclesiastical liberty, recognizing that all churches are subject to uh, mixture and error. We are in that position as well. And so we pray for a spirit of unity and the truth to prevail among us so that we would be more and more of one mind, whether as individual congregations or presbyteries or in our whole general assembly and even beyond our general assembly to the whole visible church throughout the whole United States and throughout the world that you would be working by the teaching and preaching of your word to the changing of men and nations so that we might be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ in all things, though different in some matters, yet unified in those matters that you have stipulated. We pray all this through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.